The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop watching Rory in slow motion and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 95 with guest Rob Barker, recorded live Friday, January 7th, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet, ASPNet, and C-Sharp classes online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNet web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who would drive 10,000 miles just for one smart client, Carl Franklin. Happy New Year, everybody. This is Carl Franklin. You're listening to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, and I'm here in New London, Connecticut. As always, my sick partner out there in more ways than one, out in Portland, Oregon, Rory Blythe. How are you, man? Happy New Year, everybody. I almost hesitate to ask. Yeah, You're happy, sick. Happy New Year. Again. You realize like the last 10 shows, you've been completely in, incapable of, uh, of speaking clearly and, and breathing clearly? Yes, yes, I do realize this. Um, I think that what happened is I picked up some disease when we were... I mean, I, I got some sort of a chestal uh, infection, whatever you call chestal. that, bronchial uh, inf- inflammatory um, il- disease, <laughs> and, uh, and I thought it went away, but then it didn't. So, see, so that's my explanation. So, so that's what happened. I think it was the hookers in Vegas. The, the hookers in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I told you to stay away from them. Yep. Yeah, well, whatever it was, I I just I just went to Colorado this week, yeah. and like as soon as I got off the plane, um, I I was just totally sick again. I think wow. it's the dry air and and the no oxygen, and and the airplane stuff and the whatever. And yeah, so I I, I feel like shit. Yeah, that sucks. But that's okay. I'm totally totally excited totally excited to, <laughs> to be here. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> what did you do for uh, Christmas? Christmas for Christmas. Yeah. Um. I avoided my crazy family. Uh, Erika <laughs> and I went to see her sister down in Eugene on the on Christmas Eve, and then we headed up to see my grandparents uh, on on Christmas Day. And ah. um, same as Thanksgiving, you know, it was just a typical normal kind of thing where everybody went sort of crazy, and like my sister cried a lot, and I, I couldn't figure out why, and and uh, just like constant mental anguish and stress. Um, what'd you do for Christmas? Wow, I okay, I won't even go there. Uh, I had like, you know, the typical suburban warrior kind of holiday, just, you know, stress level through the roof, you know, trying to please everybody, doing 90,000 things with 90 million people. You know, I, I, next year, uh, Gretchen and I are going to take the kids and go to Florida. You know, yeah, I mean, Christmas sucks. It does. Know? It's such a pain in the ass. I mean, yeah. yes, it's great to see everybody, but man, I mean, if you want to like, if you want to stay current in the good graces of your family, you have to do a Christmas with every freaking member of every ex-divorced person in the, <laughs> in the chain of, you know, of, An of failed marriages. An person would probably be somebody you would be married to again. Probably. I just yeah. wanted to point that out before you continue. <laughs> that's that scientific method at work again. Yeah. Um, the scientific method in one second, uh, which is the thing I was talking about before. You can do all five steps in one second. Um and there you go. No, no. So that's the thing. It was just unbelievably, you know, and on top of all that, we're doing stuff with Franklin's Net and .NET Rocks and trying to get ready for the new year. And 
and all that. But, um, you know, the big thing that happened, of course, uh, since we last had a show is the movie. I have yeah. at least 500, no, at least 450 copies in-house, and there's another 500 copies or 400 copies now or so at the manufacturer, and we're, um, we've are we sold, you know, we haven't sold that many, 150, something like that, 175, but those are the, the hardcore fans, but if you just go to www.franklins.net, for a measly 10 bucks plus 5 bucks shipping anywhere in the world, uh, you can pick up .NET Rocks 2004, the movie. It's about two hours long, and it's got uh, Rory and myself and Richard Campbell, when Richard was a guest on the show, talking about water-cooled PCs. And actually, we've gotten a lot of, uh, and Jeff knows what I'm talking about here, we've gotten a lot of feedback on the blogs and stuff. And one of the things people are liking the most was the little behind-the-scenes thing we did with Jeff. You know, hey, how do you put the show together? How do you record it? How do you edit it? How do you, you know, what goes into it? And Jeff's man, Jeff's got this big fan club now because people didn't realize all the work that he did to get the show on the air. Yeah, like like today when I asked him how I was going to connect, and he said, "I don't know." <laughs> Jeff, would you say it takes probably about fourteen hours to do a show? It takes probably about fourteen hours. Yeah, that seems like a pretty reasonable estimate, depending on how much you guys f- up. Oh, I'm sorry, I hey, can't say hey, that on the air, hey. can I? Oh, I guess I'll just have to bleep that out. <laughs> Because you're so smart. Well, um, we just got a new piece of hardware today, though, that uh, allows us to uh, get a better signal. Such such a better signal with a telephone that we actually don't need to process the phone track afterwards. Mm. It's that good. And we're not even going to tell everybody what it is. No, we will. It's a Telos 1, T-E-L-O-S 1. It's about 500 bucks. You connect it to the phone line. You connect it to your mixer. And it has an input and an output. And it does an incredible separation job of separation so good that we don't have to clean up the phone track hmm. and it's going to save hours and hours of pain and anguish so, uh, so does that mean you're going to start paying jeff less yeah as a matter of fact but but the bit, but good news is for jeff that uh you know now he doesn't have to be here all weekend so you know but he doesn't get paid as much that's true <laughs> we're just going to have to find something else to pay him for so which i think we probably could anyway rory i got some mail Okay. I don't want to take up too much time with the mail, but we did get some good email. Dear Carl, Rory, and crew, I'm a fairly new .NET developer coming from Java to C Sharp and just started listening to your show. I must say that I'm very impressed with the level of expertise that you bring to the show. I learn something new every time I tune in. And by tune in, I mean download and listen in the car on my commute every day. It is so nice now to listen to something that is not only funny, but a great asset technically to all .NET Rocks listeners. I firmly believe your show makes me and all other listeners better developers. So Franklin's Nets motto is right on. You guys are truly training developers to work smarter. Uh, And I didn't even pay for him to say that. Uh, I would love to say that having some .NET swag would give me some ammo for technical debates with my coworkers or make me feel much cooler than them. But the truth is, I am my poor company's only developer, so it probably just bo- it would probably just boost my inner geekhood and replace some of this old Java stuff I have laying around. Thanks, and keep up the good work. And that was from uh, Rick Schott, S-C-H-O-T-T. Rick, just for being so cool, we're going to send you a .NET Rocks movie free of charge. Enjoy. He's going to be like, what the hell is this? I thought it was all about .NET. All right. Well, anyway, hey, Carl, Rory, and Jeff. This is one of those emails I send every three to four months to say hello from Down Under. And this is from our friend Eric Zjarby. What a year for .NET Rocks 2004 was. Just great. Uh, You got us Don Box, Bob Resselman, Jeff Richter, Jay Rocks, Rocky, Petzold, and many other great .NETters. Anyway, I got my DNR the movie just fine, but I haven't had time to watch it yet. But I'm hoping to watch it sometime next week. .NET has been keeping me very busy, but this time I'm planning ahead and will attend the PDC this year. I hope to see all you guys there so we can have some gach together. P.S. Some what? Some gach. Could you spell that? That's, uh, no, actually I can't. He spelled it G-A-G-H. That's the Klingon delicacy we were talking about with Bernard, remember? <laughs> okay. He oh. says, P.S. Gach is best served alive. Keep on rocking Eric's Jarby, and he says, my requests for this year are... And I totally agree with him. Andrus Halsberg, got to get him on. Ward, Ward Cunningham, one of the fathers of OOP, got to get him on. Brian Harry, Chris Broom, 
Larry Osterman and Pat Helen, all great guests. We would love to have those guys on. We'll make a note to uh, to uh, solicit them. And Anton writes in, uh, Carl, this is great, Rory. You're going to love this. I'm currently learning ASP.NET, and I got to say that I love the .NET Rock show. It makes coming up to speed with .NET so much more interesting and entertaining. So thank you much for the show, and keep it rocking. Also, love the music as well. Anyway, I put together something in reaction to Bernard Wong's episode concerning the rumors about Rory. And I think he's talking about you crashing the MVP summit, so, you know, in quotes. Uh, And the story, again, is that Rory uh, was rumored to have crashed the MVP summit. I when was invited. He was, when, he was, when he was actually invited and, and some people got mad. This was this year. Well, last year, 2004. Some people got mad because they thought he just showed up with a bottle of whiskey and, and you know. Beat guards over the head to <laughs> sneak into the yeah. festivities. Right. And of course, you know, the one person who got really, really mad about it is an MVP this year. Right. Oh, yeah. That's true. Really he actually. And he got mad because he wasn't invited and you were. Right. And turns out he was made an MVP. So there you go. Well, anyway, um, this reaction uh, from Anton here is at shrinkster.com slash 2XP. And I'm just going to let you go check it out and, and check it out here. There's a picture of Bernard Wong. It says, uh, you, no, you may want to listen to the episode first in order to understand how this came about. But if you just click to check out what happened, there's some pictures there of Rory and Steve Ballmer and uh, a little dialogue that goes on between the two of them. And I'm not even going to – it's just insane. <laughs> so I'm not even going to try to describe it. <laughs> but it's hilarious. Okay. Rob Barker is a technical evangelist in the developer and platform evangelism team at Microsoft and is currently focused on promoting the adoption of the Microsoft Office System 2003 as one of Microsoft's premier examples of smart clients. Rob's primary responsibility is to explain how developers, enterprises, and independent software vendors, or ISVs, can leverage Microsoft's investments in Office 2003, such as the native XML standards support in Word, Excel, and InfoPath, along with enabling development technologies, the Information Bridge Framework, and Visual Studio Tools for Office 2003. He was also a frequent speaker at events and conferences along with being a technical reviewer for several book publishers. Rob has been working with Microsoft Technologies for over 14 years, and before becoming a C-sharp developer in 2000, Rob's languages of choice were Visual Basic and C++, a man after my own heart. Hey, Rob, how are you? Doing great. How are you guys? Welcome to our wacky show. That is truly it. This is a very wacky show. Indeed. Well, I know you, you know, and, and Rob's been hanging out before the show, so he got to hear us all, you know, throwing mud at each other. He even got to participate, actually. Um, yeah, I don't know if you were paying attention, but yeah, he he said some nasty things to us too. I didn't that see was that. Quite nice. <laughs> so he, you've indoctrinated him, and uh, so we've indoctrinated him, induced him. What the fucking word am I trying to say? <laughs> we've inducted him. Is that the word? Inducted. <laughs> What, what do you want to say, Carl? <laughs> you know, we've we've in, we've brought him into the fold. Inducted is that the word I want? I don't you know. know. Um, it, it's it's one of those things that I knew before. Um, we started. That's a college word. It. It's a college word. You know, it's been too long. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you've you've uh, initiated him in the in the ways of .NET Rocks. Well, Rob, after I was reading your um bio there, there's you know we've had several guests on the show in the last year talking about smart clients from different perspectives. The closest one I think we got to Office was, uh, you know, the talking about the Office tools, uh, Visual Studio tools for Office 2003 uh, with Robert Green, And that was a long time ago. And looking at the statistics, that's not a very popular show, um, probably just because not a lot of the shows back then were as popular as they are now. Um, just in the last two months, November and December 2004, our uh, downloads went from top 70,000 to like 200,000 per month. So uh, that show was one of the ones that didn't get downloaded a lot. But I want to – the thing that really makes me interested here is talking about the XML support in in Office. But So remind me to get back on that topic. And uh, But before I do that, why don't I just let you – 
you know, introduce the the topic that you're talking about, you know, what what's this all about? Sure. So I mean, uh I mean, I know, like you said, uh, there's been a, a bunch of people that have, you know, been on the show talking about smart clients, and, and literally everybody talked to has got uh, a different swing at what a smart client is and yeah. how things should be built and what technologies a smart client is all about. Right. And realistically, you know, the way that we look at it, when I say we, it's it's kind of you know, the Microsoft vision of smart clients. It's when we talk about smart clients, it's, it has really nothing to do with Microsoft, right? It's a concept. Um, we actually talk about smart clients as, you know, not being a revolution, but kind of an evolution. Um, it's the evolution of software. Um, and that, that's really one of the big points that we want to get across, because when, when we talk about smart clients, we want to make people understand that, yeah, sure, you know, we want people to develop with our technologies, but at the same time, you can develop with Microsoft technologies and also incorporate functionality from a back-end system from BEA, uh, Java, it doesn't really matter. We're, mm-hmm. we're all about promoting building applications that take advantage of all the great resources on a PC yeah. um, and be able to interoper- interoperate in a heterogeneous environment. But in so, terms of the client itself, you're obviously the, the choice is Windows or what, Mac, Linux, that's about it, you know? Right, right. You know, I mean... The big point there from a smart client standpoint is, you know, when we make this case and we talk about all these technologies and we talk about all these smart client capabilities, honestly, when we come to the very end of that discussion, it's like, who has all the best assets right. that you can build smart clients with? Right. And obviously, it's really on the Windows platform. Sure. Um, whether you're talking about just writing a Windows Forms application uh, or whether you're talking about writing an application for a device. Yep. Um, or even, you know, kind of my area of specialty, which is, which is Microsoft Office. Yeah. Um, it's, it's taking advantage of all the, all the investments we've made, not just simply in Office, but a lot of different areas, being able to capitalize on them as a developer and being able to build solutions faster, build solutions better, right. um, and be able, being able to get more return on investment. Right. I mean, that's really the, that's really the key. Yeah. And we're really uh, – you're obviously talking about – if you're talking about using Office – not necessarily an application that you would write for public consumption, which, you know, I, what I mean by that is like you wouldn't necessarily sell it like a, a word processor or something like that and use Word yeah, to you're not sell gonna, a word you're not going to write a Word document application yeah. and go out and sell it somewhere. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, when we think about Office, really what we're talking about is developing solutions around the Office system that are essentially built for enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Now, people that are sitting at their desks every day, they're either living in Word or living in Excel or living in Outlook um, and being able to make them more productive users and as well as make the people that are developing those solutions more productive. You know, the, there's a contrast that has always occurred to me with office programming, and that is there seems to be some, like, stigma among, like, quote-unquote, the real developers that if they're using office, they're not really, devi- you know, let, that's sort of looked on, like, access programming or you know what Absolutely. i mean because it's been like vba in the past but yet if you think about it from uh you know a money standpoint from a business standpoint it really makes more sense to leverage what's there than uh you know you, like you can you can make the boss happier a lot quicker with you know by using office and excel I, but I, do you think what is it what is it about that about that dichotomy is it that the uh, not a lot of developers have the experience with the object models. Is that well? Number one, you know, uh, I have to say we haven't done the greatest job in the world of of constantly building Office and making it forward backward compatible. That's always been an issue of people porting code. Mm-hmm. Um, VBA is is you know, God, there's millions of lines of VBA out there. Right. Um, there's people that live, eat, and breathe that stuff every day. Right. And 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 looking at porting that stuff is is quite difficult. Right. I mean, people Absolutely. have you know. Production applications running in that. Um, problems with VBA. You know, if you're a quote-unquote real developer, bad security model, your code's attached to your document, you're sending it all around, you're leaving your end users up with the, the choice of, oh, do I run this macro or do I not run this macro? Yeah. Um, so th- that's been the problem. And, and more so the problem has been when Office was created, it was created as a suite of applications, Right. right? Things that you could use to write a doc, things that you could use to create a presentation or sure. a spreadsheet or whatever. Nowadays, what we want people to think about, because of all the investments we've made, is the fact that 
we're looking at office as a platform now, right? So we're making these investments. So to your point about you know that last show with uh, with Robert Green in terms of the Visual Studio tools for Office not being really popular. Um, even though that show might not have been popular, we still are making a huge investment in Visual Studio Tools for Office because the whole development experience for a .NET developer happens in Visual Studio. So we're, de- you know, we're developing and integrating all capabilities of writing solutions for Office inside of Visual Studio. So we are bringing to the professional developers the capabilities of building Office solutions with managed yeah, code. <laughs> I was actually just going to say that that's probably one of the reasons there is a stigma there, right? When you're talking about the real developers, and I actually hate that term, you know, just because I think people typically wind up developing whatever it is that they want to develop. And some people really love VB and some people love developing for Office and they don't want to do anything else. So it's a little bit snobby to... Yeah, that's you know, why that, I put it in quotes there. To that way. And I'm not saying you did that, Carl. I'm saying that people do do that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and that's why I put it, it in quotes. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was going to say that just the fact that Office is the platform is probably one of the reasons that it gets snubbed. You know, it's sort of like, it makes you look like a one-trick pony. But the weird thing is, the really, really weird thing is that Mozilla is also a platform, but you're just a total f***ing rock star if you're coding for Mozilla, right? <laughs> if you're writing applications against Mozilla, and then you're dealing with something that's much less sophisticated than what you've got going on in Office. So that's, that, that's a really bizarre thing. I it think is it bizarre. just kind of comes down to maybe Microsoft's image as, you know, being the more corporate side of things and, and other platforms which have similar scenarios being a little sexier. But... Um, yeah, I don't think so. What about the idea that it might be too easy? Have you ever thought of that? Like it's not challenging enough for most developers to want to bite into? Because it's not easy. Look, I don't think it's easy. Believe me. Otherwise, I'd be doing it all the time. I think maybe there's a perception that it's like, you know, you just do what you want to do, record a macro, and you've got got your thing. Yeah, Yeah, that's where I think the problem is. Yeah. Right, so people look at writing solutions for Office as being some little teeny simple little thing. Right, I'm going to write a document. I'm going to put a button on it, and that button populates some box. Right, right. People don't look at oh well, hey, I can you know now with the information bridge framework, I can now go ahead and tie multiple line of business systems together using a service oriented architecture, all built on metadata. I can tie all that information together, have my Word, my Excel within Outlook be able to tie all that stuff together and build an application. But when the end user uses it, it doesn't even look like an app. And the thing yeah. is, is that I don't think people look at Office in the proper, in the proper way when they're thinking about architecting solutions. Yeah. They think about applications, they go, oh, I've got to write a Windows Forms application right. for it to be a real app. When what you're really talking about is plumbing behind an Excel spreadsheet or a document or whatever that or InfoPath is yeah. is a great thing that people tend to leave out. That's a really robust platform. You know, and, and, and now with you know all of our support for managed code within InfoPath, you know, I mean you can build inside of Visual Studio solutions for InfoPath. Um, well, so thing, I mean it's kind of yeah. I mean just by thinking about those things, you can see the pro- the progress we're making building. Office as a development platform. Yeah. What kinds of really cool things have you seen done with, with this, uh, you know, with Office, Visual Studio Tools for Office? Or even before, just with VBA? Yeah, well, I mean, VBA, I mean, God, the, the applications run the gamut. You know, I mean, you can be as, as simple as, you know, having somebody write in a, an absence or a time reporting form versus you could have somebody that has... Uh, calculation engine that's written in Excel using VBA that pulls out multiple oil refineries and pulls back all the information and calculates how much oil is available in each refinery so that people can make business decisions on saying transfer stuff here, transfer stuff there. Yeah. Even Pac-Man. There's Pac-Man in Excel. What'd you say? They right. said there was Pac-Man in Excel. Didn't that, there was some guy who coded Pac-Man and uh, one other game. I don't remember which one. Really? In Excel. Yeah, it did really faithful versions of the arcade games in Excel. What? Wow. Yeah. Using, I'm pretty sure that he colored the, the, the cells um, and used those as, you know, his, <laughs> uh, as his pixels. Wow. And he recreated Pac-Man in another game. It was big news for a while because it was kind of a crazy hack. Wow. Yeah, you can do a lot of stuff. Well, okay. <laughs> well, it is a platform, right? And I think sure. that's kind of what 
Sure. You know, I think that's kind of what uh, Rob's getting at here is that it really is a platform. It's not just, you're not just coding against some little tiny object model. There's still a lot of stuff you can do. There's a but lot of stuff you can do. And it's kind of, kind of crazy. So. Eventually though, you may, you know, you may have the brick wall syndrome though, right? I mean, InfoPath is great for data entry, but that's what it does. You right. know what I mean? It, it isn't going to take the place of a Windows Forms development environment. Well, it will in a lot of cases, actually. There are a lot of Windows Forms applications out there that are written that are little more than just very simple data entry applications that are nothing more than like a nice GUI front end to a database that could be done much faster and much more easily using InfoPath. But with Info- and, InfoPath, you have all the nice binding stuff with drop-down lists and all sorts of it's great... Not, it's not just nice. It's completely automatic, and it's a hell of a lot easier than it is to code it yourself. Really? And also, yeah. the, other thing, the other thing you have to think about, the difference between an InfoPath solution and a Windows Form solution, right? Unless you go ahead and build all of the offlining capabilities inside of your Windows Forms app, you're pretty much stuck. You need a connection. Yeah. Now, yeah. if you take InfoPath and if you look at a scenario, uh, pretty simple, you know, everybody buys a house eventually in their life. So imagine if your mortgage broker or your real estate agent is hanging with you at the house you like, and they pull out their tablet PC and they go ahead and fill out all of your information in an InfoPath form, right? And the other, the other key thing, the, the key difference between Windows Forms and InfoPath is InfoPath is really designed to automate the process of filling out forms that are about three to five pages long, mm-hmm. right? Don't get into 18, 20, 30 pages. Right. You know, that's where you should leave. Obviously, there's a lot of data. Put that stuff in a Windows Forms application. Or a web app, for so that matter. They go, ahead, they go ahead and sit there, and they enter all the information in. They can store that as an XML file offline, go back to their business, sync back up into their network. And that thing can be taken off, and a whole business process started based upon the information that they collected while they were offline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a key attribute for InfoPath is it enables a very, very good offline use and very, very quick ways of filling out forms and information that you really couldn't normally do uh, if you didn't have a network connection. Let me, let me and, just... And in, yeah, in okay. another thing you can do, and I just get excited about this because InfoPath, I think, is one of the biggest sleepers that Microsoft has. It's one of those products nobody really knows about or uses, but really is incredible. Um, when you point it at a web service and it pulls the whistle down and, and, and builds a form just based on that, and it's ready to go, right? You don't have to do anything. I mean, by the time somebody has set a web reference in visualstudio.net, you could have the application done in InfoPath. For, for, for some types of web services. Well, let me ask you a question because uh, I'm going to give you a real-world application that I've written for .NET Rocks. And you tell me if this will work with InfoPath, all right? So I've got a, a Windows app that we run on the back end, and it connects to our SQL Server database directly. Uh, don't, there isn't any need to use a web service, although we certainly could do that. And it's using data sets. And uh, we have a list of shows, essentially, and we have an edit page. We have basically a couple of lists on the left and a tab on the right. And uh, for each of the different pieces, there's a tab. So we have a list of shows. There's a tab to edit the show. Then we have a a guests tab. So when you select a show, you click the guest tab. And then uh, you can pick from a list of guests the current guests from that show, and you just assign them, edit the guest, upload a picture. That's all, that's all fairly normal. You can uh, edit sponsors and, and assign sponsors to the, show, to the show. You can add links, and you can also get a, a CD label. And what that is using is a print uh, preview control. And I essentially build uh, a CD label using GDI on the fly, and show it in a print preview control. And so uh, you get to actually see and zoom in what the, what the labels are going to look like. And so do you have that capability to do everything I just explained in, with InfoPath? Well, I mean, based on what you described, I wouldn't even recommend you use InfoPath. You wouldn't You recommend. could do it, but you probably wouldn't want to use InfoPath. Yeah. Is it the optimal application for the type of app you're talking okay, about? Okay, so, so why? Why? What's missing in InfoPath that wouldn't allow me to do that? It's not what's missing. It's what is it meant to do, right? It's, it's, it's the difference in, uh, so, I mean, when you think about a- any application, right? So mm-hmm. you have to go, you have to say to yourself, you know, what, what's really driving my app? Yeah. It's, not the, it's not the dev experience. It's not the technology. Right. It's how is my end user going to use this application? Yeah. Right? And what you described 
you know, honestly, you can design a better UI in Windows Forms to accommodate all the fields right. and tabbing right. elements. Right. So when uh, I said when I said InfoPath is really for data entry, and you guys disagreed, you know, did we disagree? Yeah, I think no. We we talked we talked about further capabilities of InfoPath, but I never disagreed. It's a it's a form building tool. Right, That's it's really for data it entry. It's yeah, for, I mean, so. we, we think of InfoPath, when you produce something out of InfoPath, um, think, of, think of anything, really, in Office as a document. Right. Right? Even a spreadsheet is what we, what we would con- refer to as a document. Mm-hmm. Now, something that you can archive, something that, you know, it has meaning. You know, when I print it out, it means something. If I close, if I close my Windows Forms app, it's gone. You know, I, I'm actually producing something uh, that's physical, that's tangible when we're working within Office. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it. I'm, you know, that's, I was always under the impression that InfoPath was really document-centric data entry, and it isn't really working and massaging and nice UI. And I mean, it's nice UI for entry, but it's not like, you know, you, you have a, a cache of data, you work with it, and then you save the changes and... You know. Well, you, you actually you actually do. Yeah, I mean, to your Maybe. point, pointed at a web service. Right. Um, you know, you don't have to be a power user. You don't have to be. Uh, you don't have to be a developer. Have your developer write a web service, have it exposed, um, let them attach to it. They can go ahead and format those forms endlessly. And if the, if you do hit a brick wall, you can just write a lot of stuff in managed code and hook that into your InfoPath form. So I guess so. You're saying two different things here. Are you saying that? You you told me the application I described wouldn't be good for InfoPath, and now you're saying that you could do that. I'm, I'm confused. You could do it, but that doesn't mean that InfoPath is the right tool for the job. Okay. All right. Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. So let's move on to uh, to Office, uh, Visual Studio Tools for Office. And one of the things that you um, have brought up that we really haven't talked about at all, and I am really interested to know more about, and I'm sure the listeners are, is the um, the the framework here. What is it called? The Information Bridge Framework. What is yeah. that? Um, so that's something that uh, we released uh, last year in June. It was uh, announced at TechEd in, uh, in Steve Ballmer's keynote, and essentially... You know, the Information Bridge Framework is about, is about connecting line-of-business data into Office. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the core feature of what we call the acronym for it is IBF. Mm-hmm. So the Information Bridge Framework is all about exposing web services from your line-of-business applications, creating a unified view on those line-of-business applications that are then exposed into Office. And... IBF is exposed into Outlook, Word, Excel, and soon-to-be InfoPath, um, as well as Internet Explorer. Um, so maybe we I w- provide the capabilities of allowing uh, an end user, right, somebody that's sitting there, let's just say, you know, there's a person sitting there in Outlook. 
Mm-hmm. They get an email that says, hey, I'm having some problems. I have a service request. Um, I need some help with this. Um, we enable the information bridge framework through the use of smart tags. So when you build an information bridge solution, you're essentially building a smart tag as well and a smart tag recognizer and all that type of stuff. So when you're in that email, you can actually activate IBF through a smart tag. So you can see the service request number that's in there. Go ahead and drop that smart tag down and say, go get me all my information. And the beautiful thing about IBF is normally when I'm sitting there and I get this service request in, I've got to go over to my SAP system. I've got to go over to my Siebel system. I've got to go over to five different things to figure out what's going on. With IBF, we take all those systems, put that unified view on it, right? So we create, an, we create a single entity that means the same thing in every one of those systems. And then when the information comes back to the office application, it's all, ex, uh, it's all displayed in the task pane. So you don't know where you got your information from at being that person that's doing the job. And that's good. All you know is that you got your information that you needed and you didn't have to go to any other application. Oh, being the person. Okay, yeah. Right. You stayed inside of Outlook all right, so to get all the information you needed. So essentially what you're telling me is it's a, it's a layer of abstraction between the, uh, win, between, I'm sorry, between the office UI, whatever that is, and the back-end data systems, be they web services, databases, or what have you. Correct. Okay. One of the premises, the basic premises of IBF is build everything on a service-oriented architecture. Uh, it, okay. Everything so is it's enabled SOA. through web services. So it's not yep. event-driven? No. Okay. So in order for IBF to kind of understand anything, uh-huh. I, IBF has a client technology to it. Okay. Right? It's called the Information Bridge Engine. Got it. So the engine itself contains pointers to the metadata. Mm-hmm. The metadata is obviously the smarts behind the IBF solution itself. It knows okay. where am I going to get all my stuff mm-hmm. so I can bring it back into Office and display it properly for you. And so it goes and pulls for it? or It'll go out to whatever systems you want. Um, it'll, right. you know, it'll go to multiple enterprise systems within, within your firewall. Um, it'll go outside your firewall, and we provide examples on how to use WS security to go across firewall boundaries with a fully secured pipe to go and get other information from business partners, from other enterprises, whatever you want to do. All right. Here, I'm a developer. I'm building a Word document that, is, that I'm going to have just open on my desktop, and it's going to show me a live view of how many people have ordered uh, .NET Rocks the movie. All right. Let's just say. Let's say it's an Excel spreadsheet because that's number-driven, right? So when I open this Excel spreadsheet, I want to see uh, a cell that has – you know, the current number of orders. And so would I use IBF to create an abstraction for that and no. just plug it? And I wouldn't use that. No, that's overkill for what you want to do there. It is overkill. So the, 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 like I was saying, the key to IBF is providing um, an abstraction layer right. on, on all of your line of business applications, right? Okay. We're talking about things like Siebel and SAP. All right, so everything, anything that you can possibly um, And the other important thing to realize with IBF is what it's doing is it's providing the user, you know, the person that's sitting in that email or sitting in the Word document or Excel spreadsheet, it's providing them with business context. Got it, yeah. Right? So in your example, there really, there really is no business context. You're just right. looking for a bunch of numbers to yeah. be, you know, thrown back at you. Right. But a smart tag... In Outlook, for example, that's that's going to update with with some data uh, from somewhere. Now, okay, right. let's let's take that example. The point I was getting at was when it when the data changes, like what's the mechanism? I mean, it's SOA, so that means that you're going to the client is somehow going to register some sort of repository that says, "Hey, you know, put put your document here." And the the engine, the IBF engine, is going to sort of drop a little uh, XML document in there or something, and that's going to set the whole process off. Like, how does that work? You know, behind no. The- so imagine this. Uh, so let's just say I uh, you have IBF installed, right? Okay. I, I go ahead and write a document. It's got a bunch of information in there. Mm-hmm. I send the document to you in email. Okay. So you open that document up. You know, open it up on your desktop. You're looking at the document, and you'll notice, you know, what smart tags are, right? 
Yep. So the little squiggly lines under the words. Right. So you go, oh, okay, well, hey, look, there's some smart tags that have been recognized inside this document. Yeah. So you go ahead and click on one of those smart tags. Okay. And you'll get the, the normal little uh, menu that'll drop down. Right. And then you can say, you know, show me the details within IBF. So what will happen at that point oh. is when you, when you select to show the details, what's going to happen is the task pane is going to fire off. The information bridge engine, because it has the metadata deployed to your system, of where to go, go to oh, get. I need to go out and Got grab it. a bunch of stuff. So he's so going that, to uh, a web service or something like that to get his correct. updating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And the interesting thing about IBF is um, during the development process, so it's all managed code, um, and you can actually develop Windows Forms uh, solutions using IBF. So when you're developing that task pane and you're showing a bunch of data inside of an office application, you're really what you're doing is you're writing a Windows Forms control that's being displayed in what we call regions. Hmm. Now, within that region, you can go ahead and throw buttons and grids and all kinds of things on there, the normal standard Windows Forms controls that you can use. You can even embed more forms that can be fired off from any button event, right? So you just want to simply say, hey, you know, load this other form up, and then that form itself can go and attach to multiple line of business applications if you wanted to. Hmm. So there's lots of possibilities, but the, the real key to thinking about IBF is thinking about implementing that in an enterprise. Yeah. Not something that a mom and pop, you know, ISV would do or something to just simply track one piece of, you know, one inventory system that's very small. Yeah. Um, you want to be able to take, you know, a Siebel, an SAP, and a PeopleSoft system, something that has like three customer entities. Right, all of them mean something different. All right. of them have different field names. Okay. Yeah, now, that's if you a good wanted example. to, cr- you wanted to create a unified view in all those customer entities, you would use something like IBF. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and there's okay. some, you know, there's some great information as well as demos um, and things of that nature, uh, technical articles, everything up that's off of, uh, and I'll kind of throw some resources out towards the end. Um, it's up off of uh, msdn.microsoft.com office. So what are some of the technologies people would have used in the past to do uh, this kind of thing? Oh, um, in, in terms of doing that, I mean, you know, without the Information Bridge Framework, uh, it was pretty difficult because you would have to write multiple web services. Uh, you would have to go ahead and manage all those web services. When you pull about, back the data... What about before have web to, services? I mean... Uh, even before web server, I mean, you would basically be doing, I mean, God, if you want to go Screen way back. scraping, right. Doing direct ODBC connections. Direct ODBC. You know, and, and go ahead and manage all that information and then be able, being able to say, hey, I've got customer A, I've got yeah. customer name, Logic. I've got customer this. Yeah. Um, and being able to take all those, munge them together, mm. and be able to figure out which one's the relevant thing. Um, we've Not taken fun. a lot of that capability and built it inside of the Information Bridge Framework so that it's easier for developers to create solutions, and it makes what we call information workers, people that live inside of office, um, more productive. Now, one of, the, one of the biggest questions that we always get um, is, what's the difference between the Information Bridge Framework and Visual Studio Tools for Office? Good question. And uh, Well, I can f- sort of figure that one out. There's a huge difference. And I, I mean, you guys probably already know Visto, right? That's our yes. acronym, Visto, V-S-T-O. Well, well so, we should brush up on that after you make this point and, you know, refresh well, I was gonna, I was going to ask you. I was going to kind oh, of sure. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I will so, tell you. So after I, kind of understanding just a, a little bit about IBF, I mean, you guys have a programming background. So, sure. Um, what do you think the difference between IBF and VSTO? Well, let's talk about what VSTO is. Visual Studio Tools for Office is the, the, the glue that lets you uh, uh, access the .NET framework from – Office UI. So you can load up in Visual Studio, create a new project based on Excel spreadsheet, for example, and you're, you then would use .NET controls right in the Excel spreadsheet, like buttons and list boxes and even tabs and things like that. Yeah, we and, got that kick-ass demo at TechEd. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And then double-click on your buttons, uh, add web references, uh, call web services, and then be able to not only access the framework, but access web services and access the spreadsheet and uh, its object model at the same time. 
So you're essentially using either a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet as the UI for your application and, uh, and as the presentation layer. Whereas, That's perfect. Yeah, so thank you very much. Yeah, I do my homework. And I haven't even used it yet. So in the IBF, <laughs> <laughs> IBF sounds like a more of a, um, a middleware back-end kind of um, glue for, for accessing disparate pieces of data and, and sort of through a, uh, what sounds to me like a binding mechanism, go uh, right into little segments of your UI to expose um, more information from those data sources. So that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the the one the one problem with trying to explain IBF is you know it's kind of funny where most of us get up and we start talking about a particular technology and things become pretty obvious you know yeah oh hey here's how you write a control or here's how you sure. you know here's how the visual stuff is easy to get yeah but the way we normally start any discussions with the information bridge framework is we really show a demo yeah. And that really sets the stage. Um, and, you know, kind of doing this format in the, in the radio thing, it, it makes it a little difficult. Um, <laughs> so I would totally encourage that's anybody that's, that's even got an inkling of interest in IBF, um, making sure that it's appropriate and stuff for use, is, is to go out and, and try to just walk through one of those demos. Because once you see a demo, all of a sudden the light bulbs go off and you go, holy crap, I get it. That's how I felt about Visual Studio Tools for Office. Yeah, yeah, me too. At, at first, I thought it was just a really, really long product name, and I, <laughs> I didn't know what I would do with it. And then Carl and I took a look at it, and I just slapped my forehead. Yeah, Plop, it was as awesome. Carl likes to say. Yeah, you know, and just seeing that, just seeing the level of integration between Office and .NET at that time was a real eye opener. So, yeah, I can see what you're saying about you know giving this, uh, giving this a try before passing any judgment. You know, the, the other thing is, you know, I know, there's, I know there's tons of VBA developers out there, and the thing about Visual Studio Tools for Office is, is the fact is what we've, what we've really done is, is brought VBA, you know, to the next level. And we're providing, you know, it's, it's managed code. We're taking advantage of everything in the framework, security, right. deployment, everything that you want, debugging, everything that you want is inside of Visual Studio when you're using VSTO. You know, yeah. I mean, you get Excel, you get Word, all as designers inside of Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and most of the stuff that you talk about and hear about today are things built around, and God, I hate this title, Visual Studio <laughs> Tools for Office 2003. I know. Yeah. That's the thing that's <laughs> existing today. But now, you know, you have a bunch of people, and probably the cool demo you saw was from, uh, from Reza, uh, TechEd or something, um, that's probably showing some of the capabilities within Widby, you know, Visual Studio mm. 2005, which is we have the next version of Visual Studio Tools for Office built into that uh, with lots of new capabilities. You know, we have data islands within inside of documents. We have a server document class so that wow. you can fire up Word and Excel documents on, on the server without instantiating the application. Hmm. You know, I mean, we have schema-based programming models. Uh, we, we've taken uh, a lot of the complexities out of writing solutions around Office. You know, so when you're in Excel spreadsheet and you want to create a named range or you want to create a named cell, the moment you name that cell, we create an object for you that you can start writing code against. Um, you know, it, it occurs to me as you're as you were talking about this, that the reason, probably the biggest reason that I have never done uh, any substantial work in office development is because the object model scares the hell out of me because it's so huge and complex. Absolutely. And that's, I think, my, the biggest reason why I have not done anything you know, significant today. I've done some, I've, I've recorded macros, you know, and I've looked at it and say, you know, I would never, ever have figured that one out. But, uh, you know, that's been about the extent of it. So, you know, what's going on in terms of education or training on the object model and how to write the code? I mean, now not only do we have the object model, but we have the object, object model with VBNet. Right. So. so, I mean, you know, the things that we try to do is training people at different conferences. Uh, we, just, uh, we just released a brand new book. Um, called .NET Development for Office. 
And that really goes through and discusses, you know, the object models, how to write code, how to migrate VBA code to manage code. It, a lot of this is, you know, each individual application is quite complex. I mean, they're, yeah. they're big OMs. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no two ways about it. Lots of capabilities. It's really dependent upon what you want to do within an application. Are there any but good when books that simplify it? When you're specifically it? thinking about, like, Visual Studio Tools for Office or the Information Bridge Framework, your targeted office applications are Word, Excel, for Visual Studio Tools for Office. Those mm -hmm. are the two that we support today. Yeah. And those are the two that we're going to be supporting in the Widby timeframe, the Visual Studio 2005 timeframe. Oh, really? I was hoping you guys would at least get to Outlook by then. That's well, too bad. I mean, that's, that's definitely something that we, we constantly hear about because, you know, everybody lives in Outlook. So yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's definitely something that, you know, do we think about those types of things for the future? Absolutely. Well, I know you do, yeah. Um, it's just a matter of getting to it. But I know you guys have been a bit sidetracked uh, with security and stuff lately. You got, by you guys, I mean the whole company as a whole, uh, right, which is right. sort of throwing a monkey wrench in the schedule, but that's another story. I have one very important question, which is, um, can you please go into the office of the person who comes up with the names for these tools and smack <laughs> them for me? <laughs> Just yeah, give them you know, a bitch and, and slap, actually, man. Um, the funny thing is, is that Visual Studio Tools for Office, that's not even the real name. It's... The I know the real name is too Microsoft too long. Office Visual Studio Tools for Office Professional 2003 edition. What the? F <laughs> it's a huge name. Yeah. Isn't that? I think Rory alluded to this in one of his blog posts. You know, that's the difference between you know, you know the the reason why some of these you know iPod versus Windows Media Player enhanced codec this that your mother and your father. You know, that's why those things are cool is because the of the little catchphrases and names. And, uh, well, I don't want to get off on a rant, so I'll stop there. So some guy in the chat room says he just call it cool office shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I realize that, you know, everybody, every department's got to get their plug in the name, you know. And so you end up with these long names. Is it is that you think the reason? It's just like has well, to be I mean, the, so the reason, the reason for for Visto being called what it is is because um, Visual Studio Tools for Office is actually developed out of the developer division, mm. right? So it's not even though it is for Office, um, it's not developed um, from within the Office product team. Um, mm. It's actually developed from the developer division. So the people that own and write and plan. Everything around Visual Studio, they are the developers, organizers, PMs, everything for Visual Studio Tools for Office. Yeah. So, you know, it, and, and I, think there's a, I think there's a key difference there. And the fact is, is that because there's, you know, ownership from the developer division of our company, um, yeah. when we're thinking about creating applications and kind of transforming the look and feel and view of Office as a developer platform, we want developers that, have, uh, that are writing the best, you know, IDE in the world, developing the tools that are going to enable Office. Yeah, okay. So, and, and that's, a, that's a key characteristic, you know. These, these guys that are writing this stuff, they, they live, eat, and breathe Visual Studio every day. Yeah. So do you know of any good resources in terms of learning how to write applications? Because obviously the tools are there, but as I alluded to before, you know, the, the objects, the object model is really complex and it's not very well documented. And uh, are there any good resources and books that sort of take the, the sting out of learning that stuff? Um, you know, I mean, like I mentioned that one book that we just released, and that's really around managed code in Office. Okay. Um, literally, you know, I mean, one of the resources that, you know, you can Google to find something on is MSDN. Right. Um, and, you know, another, another great resource, and I mean, I know all the guys there, is Office Zealot. Mm -hmm. um, okay. OfficeZealot.com. I mean, these guys have a plethora of information and tons of blogs up there. Um, Was that book that, I mean. Yeah, sorry. Was that book that you mentioned, the Rod Stevens book? Uh, no, that one was, uh, who did that one? Uh, I think it was Andrew, uh, Andrew Whitechapel. Okay, I'm, I'm looking on, uh, Amazon.com, and it looks like 
A Press has a book, uh, Microsoft Office Programming, A Guide for Experienced Developers by Rod Stevens. Let me just look at the stars here and see what happens here. Uh, looks like there's only one review, and it's four and a half stars. That's so good. It's, uh, it's, it's good. Of course, I'm hoping it's out of five. Yeah, four out of four and a half out of five. Actually, it's four. I'm sorry. I just didn't get close enough to the screen to see it, but four out of five. But that's only one review, so don't take that as as gospel. But I guess there's stuff stuff out there. But yeah, man, that's been... and actually the other thing, uh, the other thing, and, and and partially something that I'm responsible for during my real job during the day is um, we have what we call um, e-learning. Uh, so it's electronic learning online. It's all self-paced. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be coming out, um, you know, probably first half of this year. Okay. Uh, that's all about office development. And it's right. It's, it's how do I write Visual Studio tools for office code? It's how do I write IBF? How do I write a smart document? Um, how do I do some basic XML stuff in Word and Excel? Um, it's all about those types of capabilities so that people can, you know, self-pace themselves, go through their presentations, understand the technology, as well as have hands-on labs that they can direct themselves to. Um, we do hosted VPC images so that they can go have and have mm. the environment already set up for them so they can go through our labs mm. um, and really learn how to do everything. Mm. And that's something that will be coming online, like I said, you know, like the first half of this year. We're, mm. uh, we're just about wrapped up with, with a lot of the reviewing and everything, and it will be an extremely valuable asset for people that were, really want to begin looking at Office and creating solutions around Office. Okay. You know, I, I recently saw a, uh, a tool, a utility and I can't remember how I found it. I got an email from somebody, one of the RDs or something. But it's a utility that does Outlook folder synchronization without having to use Exchange. Have you seen this? Uh, without having to use Exchange? I mean, you're talking about RPC over HTTP? Um, I think so. Let me, let me check. Let me look at my... Uh... We do have a capability within Outlook so that you can take any internet connection and go ahead and synchronize with Exchange, do full email transfers and everything else. Right, I know it's that. Over, but, but it's all it, RPC over HTTP. So. But if you're not using Exchange, like we don't use Exchange here, but you know, my, uh, my wife and I want to share a calendar, for example. Gotcha. Yeah, that's always been a, a real pain to have to deal with that stuff. But no, I don't, I don't seem to have the email handy. So if I find it, I'll, I'll post a link to it. Either of you guys, uh, Jeff or Rory, know what I'm talking about? Nope. All right. No, I was onto the whole RPC over HTTP thing just because I use it all the time, and it's really saved my butt. But, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, whatever you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I really don't. Time to get an exchange server. <laughs> yeah, you know, you say that, but it's just not that easy. You don't just, hey, you know, I think I'll put up an exchange server, and poof, oh, there absolutely. it is. I, mean, I, I, I know the pain. Yeah. I mean, pain is... You know, one and putting it lightly. Too. Yeah. Well, there's there's pain, and then there's you know expense, and then there's bandwidth and all that stuff, and security and blah blah blah. All right. Well, we'll figure it out, and uh, we'll get back to you on that. Somebody wants to know if you know anything about the updater application block 2.0. Um. Well, I mean, that was one. That was one of the things that I was it was going to kind of mention just generically about smart clients. Okay. Um, is, is, is some of the resources that we provide in cool. terms of having prescriptive architecture guidance, right? That's what we call PAG. So yeah. the application updater block is, is built from our PAG group. Um, and, I mean, in terms of, you know, specifics on, you know, App Updater 2, um, I don't know what the question is. I haven't been looking in this little IRC thing. Um, but, I mean, if they want to send it to me offline, that's perfectly fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fairly detailed app block, so. Okay. But, you know, the other thing um, around smart clients kind of just in general is uh, in terms of the resources that we're providing um, to really educate people, to educate .NET developers, both new and old, um, is we've, we've created all these developer centers. So we have a smart client developer center, and we have an mm. office developer center. Everything showing articles, sample code, of how to how to build a smart client application, things that you should consider, architectures that you should consider when you're designing these applications. Yeah. Um, and all of those are off of uh, off of MSDN. So if you did MSDN.Microsoft.com, WAC smart client, mm-hmm. you're going to get to the developer center for smart client, um, as well as for Office. You'll get to the Office developer center. Okay. And then there's just tons of links there to articles and books 
and different things of that nature. And you mentioned the PAG group. They're doing stuff with Visual Studio Tools for Office, too. You mentioned them. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, the architecture group provides a lot of guidance in terms of writing deployment guides for a smart client, um, how to build offline capabilities into Windows Forms applications, mm. taking into consideration, you know, uh, data synchronization, things of that nature. Um, and, you know, they're beginning to look at, you know, uh, providing some prescriptive guidance on how to architect office applications. Mm. Um, so. Hmm. All right, good. And uh, so, so the call to action. Pretty much, you know, as we look at any, you know, smart client application, the things that we need to look at are what's my infrastructure like? So we really encourage people to think about implementing a service-oriented architecture, um, web servicizing all of the data repositories that you potentially have so that you can begin leveraging them internally, but more importantly, leveraging them across business boundaries, right? Um, look at, make sure you're, man- you're writing things in managed code. You have applications that are written in VBA or, you know, or in VB6 or whatever. Look at porting some of that up to managed code so you can begin taking advantage of the framework and different things. Uh, so that, you know, you can begin leveraging and building real enterprise-ready solutions. Um, And, you know, look at leveraging in terms of office. Look at leveraging all of the investments that we've made within office. Now, why spend two years writing a reporter or calculation engine or a charting engine when we've built all that within Excel? Look at leveraging all those capabilities, and especially within enterprises, you know, thinking about developing applications today that are still custom. Mm. There's still training costs, all those types of deployment costs, all mm. those types of things. Yeah. Now, when you're, when you're thinking about writing an Office application, guess what? There's hundreds of millions of people out there that have Office. They're already trained on it. They already know how to use it. They're familiar with the experience. Look at leveraging that, that familiarity when you're deploying and building those applications. Okay, here's one for you, and and I I, I go along with all that. Um, SOA, Office. All right, is that funny? I mean, you know, the the typical well, VBA. I mean, does the typical VBA programmer is are they savvy to SOA? Uh, I would I would say no. Yeah. So what's the um, what's the way so that we're going to reach those people with with this with SOA? That's 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 one of the the main goals that we're that we're looking at is being able to kind of educate people that have lots of VBA code out there okay. um, to say, hey, now let's begin taking a look at how you would take some of your VBA code and pushing it over to managed code. Um, that's your first step. Yeah. Then after you get past that hurdle, is being able to then educate people to say, this is why a web service is better than doing a direct connection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of work out there. I mean, yeah. VBA is going to be around for a while. Right. Um, there's just too much code. Yep. Yep. And um, for for anything out there to access web services from VBA today, uh, I mean, you can use uh, our web service toolkits. Okay. So if you're in the Office XP world, you know, there's the Office XP web services toolkit. Um, and within Office 2003, we also have the Office 2003 Web Services Toolkit. Okay. Um, so you can go ahead and you know, access, just as you normally would do, web references and being able to access web services from VBA using those. Using VBA. Okay. So, yep. so all right. So that's sort of a Band-Aid approach to, uh, to moving into the future, but at least you can get there. Now, the SOAP Toolkit, is that the same thing as... Uh, you know, that we were using in VB6, is that the same thing they're going to be using in VBA? Basically the COM-based SOAP toolkit? Yeah, pr- pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you know, in the VBA world, you're still, you're still writing COM code, essentially. Right. Um, there's nothing, there's no managed code. You know, you're still, when you, ship that, uh, when you ship that document, you're still shipping all the code with it. You know, versus when you're looking at a Visto solution, for example, when you deploy that solution, you don't deploy the code with the solution. You're, you're deploying a manifest. Right? Yeah. So within your document, um, your spreadsheet application, you send that to a user. Within that, applic- within that, uh, expre- that spreadsheet or document, you have a manifest file. 
Yeah. That manifest file points to a server. Mm-hmm. That server is where all your code lives. That's right. where all your assemblies are. This is a really They're important down- thing for people to understand is that the code does not get embedded in the document. And, you know, we've mentioned it before on the other shows and other times, and I can't stress enough how important that is and how cool it is, but architecturally how different that is from the stuff that they're using today, and therefore that's why we got a hammer at home. Uh, the code is not embedded in the document. So, you know, you don't have to ship a new document to change to make a code update. The code right. lives, as you're saying, as, on an assembly on a server. Yep, next time if you ship the, if you ship the version... Um, of your document out, it loaded that assembly, you did all your work, you closed your document, you come back five days later, some developer made an update to the assembly. Yeah. The next time you open up that document, the manifest is going to go, oh, hey, is there an update out there? Oh, there is. Cool. Bring it back, start your app up, and then right. you're gone. Yeah, that's awesome. I really, really like that. So again, all these things are really, really, really exciting to me, and, and it makes me want to do more uh, you know, office development. But again, the hurdle to me is is learning you know, how do I access a cell in Excel spreadsheet? I mean, I just don't know. So, um, you know, maybe the, the key is to for us to maybe here, – here's, here's a call to action for our listeners. Anybody who's got any experience with programming for Office in the Office uh, – let's say the Office 2003 or even Office 2000 object model, and you have some good resources and good books that you've learned, send us an email. And uh, we'll pass that information on to uh, to our listeners because I th- for me that's the hurdle. You know, without that, you know, uh, I'm just more much more productive in VB. So very cool. Uh, it's all all awesome, and I, I you know I love it. Good stuff, good tools, making it easy, good architecture. Um, what can I say? Thanks. It's been a great show. Do you have any last-minute words of wisdom to uh, impart on our listening audience mm, before we go? Not really. I think I've uh, I think I've wasted all my brain cells this week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and now that we're pushing six o'clock on a uh, on a Friday, you know, I'm definitely definitely <laughs> done. Right. This one's for you. <laughs> yeah, but this has been a this has been a great talk with you guys, and uh, definitely appreciate um, you know all the listeners that were out there that uh, that joined. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. This is uh, Carl Franklin, Rory Blythe. Thank you from Jeff and the Sound Room. Everybody else out there, have a great week. Keep on rocking. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>